Well, thank you very much for having Carol and me with you today. It's uh, good to be back with you. We're looking forward to being with you for the Yosemite Conference. It was a very nice invitation. Yosemite is one of our favorite places on earth. If we try to imagine uh, what the new heaven and new earth might look like, we imagine something like that. I have a friend uh, who likes to sail. Um, I like uh, rivers uh, particularly, and I've told him there is no sea in, in the uh, new earth, uh, but there is a river, uh, and is there, there is a river in Yosemite as well, and uh, we are excited about uh, being there with you this coming summer. In fact, uh, some of our own uh, family members are, are hoping to join us as well. Yesterday and the day before, Carol and I were actively involved in the memorial service in Graveside for a dear sister in our assembly, and I was talking to a relative about the hope that we have in the Lord. He's Jewish and knew only of the Old Testament, and so I had particularly picked passages from the Old Testament to demonstrate belief in the resurrection. And he came up to me afterwards and wanted to talk to me about uh, the confidence that I had uh, in the resurrection and was surprised that the Old Testament would talk about it because in his experience, uh, he did not hear talk about a resurrection. And we were talking about the sister who'd passed, uh, and he was relating to me that she was a very good person and was so kind in the way in which she treated other people, that surely uh, the Lord was pleased with her. And I was sharing with him that this is not uh, the basis of our salvation, uh, that we try to be good people and try to live in a manner that is uh, pleasing and winsome to other people. Our salvation is based on the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And it reminds me of the problem that so many of us as human beings have, and that is we think that God is pleased when we seek to do the things that we believe he would appreciate. And the problem with that as human beings, is we so often go through the motions of the actions of what seem to be pleasing to him, and that we assume that those actions have merits in and of themselves, and therefore have succeeded in pleasing God. And I think there is a true disconnect between what we do on the outside and what we do from the heart. And so I'd like you to look with me, please, in Genesis chapter 4. And I would like us to look at the description of the first elaborate description of sacrifice in the Old Testament and compare and contrast the outward actions with the heart attitudes and see if we can't come to a better understanding of how it is we relate to God and how he asks of us that we not merely, rotely, go through the motions of sacrifice, but that what he really wants from us is our hearts. 
I'm reading from the first book in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The term there, acquired, is actually a little more powerful than that. Uh, She sensed that she had been gifted by God to have this baby, and the term is sometimes used to mean created or or made. I think in the uh, prophecy that was given in the previous chapter about a Savior coming, that she might have jumped to the conclusion that this could be that promised Savior. And, And she thought, like, here we go. We have a child. Maybe this is him. Verse 2, then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Perhaps you have some boys, and they've headed in different directions. Uh, One here is in animal husbandry. The other uh, is into farming, uh, completely different directions in uh, their life patterns. Verse 3, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. What I find interesting as we just read through this passage uh, is that we're not given very clear clues as to what has just taken place. Uh, We say to ourselves, they both brought an offering, the offerings were related uh, to their work, uh, and yet one is accepted before God and and regarded for the offering that he brought, Uh, the other is rejected. And strangely, as Moses is telling the story to us, he doesn't explain very clearly why. And this is caused Bible expositors to try to imagine what must have taken place. And so uh, they say to themselves in this very brief phrase in verse 3, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering, and, and they start saying, well, surely God must have established a time and a place and a way to worship. He must have explained it all to them. Uh, They're suggesting, for example, that uh, when Adam and Eve realized their sin, it had covered themselves with leaves, and God had provided a covering of animal skins, that surely he must have explained the need for a blood sacrifice uh, for sin. Uh, And we're not even told if there was any kind of visual clue as to the acceptance of one offering and not the other. Uh, Was Abel's offering accepted because it was consumed by fire. What's interesting to me is that Moses didn't tell us, although there are clues a little later on in the passage, but Moses didn't tell us at this point. And I think he does that to create a tension for us as readers as we hear this to say, how could you tell? How could you tell why one should be accepted and one should not be accepted. And I think this is the problem that we have as human beings, 
is as we, as we try to serve the Lord, as we try to bring sacrifices to the Lord. And Hebrews 13 describes even what we were doing in the last hour in which we were bringing sacrifices of the praise of our lips to the Lord. It is very difficult for us to discern which of those sacrifices were pleasing to the Lord and which of those may have been given in a manner that was self-serving and was not pleasing to the Lord. Because we have a tendency to look on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Now, interestingly, uh, there is an interpretation of this passage. The writer to the Hebrews, in the most famous passage in all of his section in in his book, chapter 11, that, that hall of faith, as he brings up the various heroes of faith, strangely, he begins with this story. And he explains to us very clearly how to interpret what we're seeing here in Genesis 4. So keeping your finger here, we'll come back. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's hear the commentary from the New Testament author as to what he knows by the leading of the Spirit to be the proper interpretation. And it will help us, therefore, to understand the struggle that we have as human beings between an outward action a discharge of a duty, an attempt to do it our own way and what God actually requires of us. Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. The first two words of verse 4 give us the key to unlock the reason why one brother's sacrifice was accepted and one was not. Because one was offered by faith and one was not. You could have watched both sacrifices being made and maybe not been able to discern the difference, but God does. And he requires of us that when we seek to please him, that we do so by acting in faith. In fact, later on in this passage, in verse 6, it says, it is impossible to please God without faith. He requires us to relate to him by faith. Go back to the first line of Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That same word is used back in chapter 1, verse 3, when it's describing 
that Jesus Christ is the, same word, substance of God himself, meaning that he is the exact representation of God, yet come in the flesh. And so when he says faith is the exact representation of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen, he is saying faith is not a wistful longing. Faith is, is not merely I hope so, but faith is a living hope that is so real that it gives absolute assurance, so real that you would base your life on its promises. Faith means you simply take God as his word and you live on the basis of that. It's a, a firm ground on which you stand. You believe it to be true. What, what's interesting is that since we live by faith and not by sight, that means some things seem unreal to us. Some things seem impossible to us. But if God says it's true, we take him at his word and we believe it to be true and we act on that even if we don't have what we would call proof. Faith is required by God in our relationship with him. It doesn't mean that he doesn't also provide evidence. You remember Jesus saying, when, when John was getting a little frustrated with him and saying, was I confused? I, I thought you were the Christ. And Jesus says, well, go back to John and his disciples and tell them, look at the things I'm doing. I'm doing exactly what you'd expect the Messiah to do. Remember the prophecies of what the millennial kingdom would be like? Do you remember the lame will walk, the blind will see, the... the Deaf will hear, the dumb will speak. Do you remember that? I am the promised Messiah, and I would set up my kingdom if you would believe in me. I'm going to have to come again. And that's why you're confused, is because you're saying, why are you not now setting up the kingdom? It's because he came into his own and his own rejected him not. Jesus does appeal to evidence. But in every part of our relationship with God, he requires faith. And that's so frustrating to us at times because we say, make it clearer to me or demonstrate yourself. Or, or sometimes we say to God, you're not being fair with me. You're not being nice to me. You're making life so difficult for me. Remember the Apostle Paul with the struggles that he was having? Do you remember he had a thorn in the flesh? And he kept asking God, take this from me. And we read that story and we say, like, God, he's your best guy. He's the best evangelist the world's ever seen. He's planting churches all over the place. Don't let Satan touch him in this way. Don't knock him to his knees to where he can't even function. Let him go. Let him serve you. And yet he comes to understand as he suffers through that physical ailment, that God's power is made clear to him through his weakness. His physical weakness enabled him to more clearly see God's power. 
And he then said, it is actually to my advantage that I'm serving through my human weakness because I then know it's the empowerment of God that enables me to serve. So often we think, if I do what's right, it's enough. May I suggest that that was what the lesson of the Mosaic Law was? We can't do what's right enough to please God because we will be inconsistent in that. And sometimes we'll just do it out of ritual or we'll do it out of duty. We'll just discharge a debt or something. Well, I have to do this. No, God wants our hearts. He wants us to relate to him in faith. And consequently, it's by faith that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And consequently, we see him receiving a testimony that he's righteous, and God testifies as one who says he's accepted the gift, and though he died so long ago, he's still speaking to us today that a justified person lives by faith. Now let's go back to Genesis and let's see how this works out. And let's see if God was a good judge of one's heart. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. What's interesting is the precise language here is the fattest of his firstlings of his flock, which meant that he didn't pick an animal with any defect, an animal he didn't want, he didn't go after the run to the litter or anything like that. He chose his best, the fattest of his firstlings of his flock to offer to God. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. It pleased him. It found acceptance because we are learning that there was an obedience grounded in his faith in God. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, lest we say there's any jumping to a conclusion, watch as God very patiently works with Cain to give him the opportunity to repent and be restored. Part of the way you can sense the rotten attitude of Cain is his reaction to God's refusal to accept the sacrifice. Cain became very angry, and you can see it on his face. His countenance fell. The reason is, is because he's standing on his own with personal self-righteousness, and he can't believe he was passed over while Abel was blessed. You ever had boys that competed with each other back and forth all the time and tried to assert dominance one over the other? Have you had competitive boys before? I have four sons. I've watched sons compete with each other. I've watched them get jealous with each other. I've watched them wrestle on the floor. Envy and rage is not unknown to a group of boys. And you can see here, though, in Cain's self-righteousness, there's an antagonistic 
unbelief. I think you'll see in him not humility, not responding to God's draw of repentance and a desire for restitution, but he, as Paul says in Romans 10, seeks to establish his own righteousness. So the Lord says to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry? Isn't it interesting that God asks him to describe his emotions and his heart? You tell me. Isn't it interesting how God seeks to draw him out? Why has your countenance fallen? And then God actually offers him an opportunity to change. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Some of us think that God gives us but one chance, that God has one opportunity. And you'll see that God is a gracious and compassionate God and seeks to draw us back to himself. One of our favorite stories in the New Testament is the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And I don't think any of us say, God, you should not have been willing to forgive a person like that prodigal son. All of us cheer on the father in the story when he runs to greet the son who has returned and welcomes him and forgives him. We, we see God like this, where he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But then he says, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. I don't know if you've been following the problem with uh, the mountain lions and the San Gabriels and the Santa Monica Mountains around here, but uh, they're coming out of the mountains and, and they're getting animals. Uh, did you hear about the, the person who was raising llamas and, and uh, the, the mountain lion came down and messed with the llamas and uh, got permission to go hunting mountain lions? God pictures the temptation towards sin, like a wild animal crouched, ready to pounce. And, and frankly, if you think of the temptations that you have been experiencing and the lure to give in to them, you realize it's like a mountain lion. It's like a mountain lion hiding right around the corner for us, ready to pounce on us and devour us and ruin us. And he says straight out, as he counsels him, he says, if you do well, you could rule over it. Its desire is for you. It seeks to swallow you up. In the New Testament, we read that Satan is like a lion on the prowl, seeking someone to devour. Here he says, you should rule over it. He counsels him to resist this temptation to sin, to do well, to do good, to do right, to make the right choice. Paul counsels us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that we're not alone in temptation. These temptations are common to all of us. Sometimes we think we're the only one that has ever felt the way we do. We think we're the only one that's ever been tempted to the degree that we're being tempted. And we, we think that we're unusual in this case. But he says, no, we're not. And God is faithful. And with every temptation, he also provides a way of escape. 
that we can endure it and we can obey him and we can believe him. We can, by faith, trust in him. And we say to ourselves, I don't feel strong enough. I don't feel like I could resist temptation. But he's asking us to choose to do what's right. And it's as if he's offering us an empowerment of escape from the temptation and success in obeying him. And even though Cain has already disappointed him because he has not offered this sacrifice in faith, and although you can see he has a dirty, rotten attitude regarding this, and that he's angry and is thinking so selfishly, God still compassionately, graciously offers him restoration if he will make the right choice. But he doesn't. In verse 9, Cain proves to us who he was all along. People act in concert with their natures. And he does continue to sin. He makes it even worse. Verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. God had warned him about this temptation to lash out against his brother. And here we have premeditated murder. He went into this with his eyes wide open, knowing of the danger, knowing of his heart, knowing of his anger, his rage, his envy, and he rose up and killed his brother. Would that dissipate his anger towards his brother? Would he be so convicted of his sin that he'd want to repent? No. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? It's a rhetorical question, trying to draw him out into conversation. And he gives an outright lie. He says, I don't know. So often when I'm counseling one of my kids regarding my disappointment in what they have done, and I'll ask them, why did you do this? They say, I don't know. <laughs> it's like they don't understand themselves, and they, they, they don't know how this happened. Well, by analysis, can you see this happening? Can you see what happens in all of our temptations and all of our difficulties? Can you see God working with us to counsel us through these things? And can you see Cain saying, what is that to me? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you coming to me asking me where he is? He's making it worse and worse. Rather than confessing it, admitting his sin and feeling guilty and shameful, he's revealing his nature. He denies any knowledge of the murder and even repudiates any responsibility that he might have for his brother. Unless some of you get the wrong impression, yes, we are responsible for the well-being of one another. We are not allowed to ever say, I'm not responsible for my brother. God accuses him and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's as if... The ground itself that has soaked up the blood of Abel still cries out to God for justice. 
And so God gives him what he's deserving. He says, now you're cursed from the earth, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And you think, now perhaps, after God has declared him guilty and judged him, perhaps Cain will repent and cry out for mercy. He doesn't. In fact, though he's killed his brother, he says, you're going to make me a vagabond? That's not fair. My punishment is greater than I could bear. What about your brother? He's dead. And you're saying being a castaway is too great for you? What about your iniquity? And he cries out and says, people are going to hunt me down. They're going to kill me. And God places a sign on him and says he'll protect him. But you can sense in Cain where his heart My wife has great EQ. I don't have good EQ much at all. EQ is emotional quotient. We often speak of IQ, intelligent quotient, of how bright we are and able to solve problems and process uh, difficulties very quickly. But there's a whole different skill of emotional intelligence in which we can read people and understand people. Perhaps we can even read a person's face I hope I could have at least read Cain's face and his countenance and seen what was in him. But we are often deceived where we think a person that we see going through the motions of righteousness is succeeding with God. When that may not be the case at all. Because what if we try to set up some sort of bargain with God, if I do what's right, if I'm a good person, if I'm nice to other people, you will accept me. And what does God say? No. That is not God's requirement for acceptance. For if righteousness could have been based on the law, then it would have been based on the law. And he would have required all of us to keep the law for us to have standing before him. But the law was our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ so that we would come to him by faith. God wants our hearts. And brothers and sisters, this is where we so often delude ourselves into thinking, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then surely God will be pleased with me. Yes, the righteous live by faith, and yes, the righteous do things that are pleasing to God, but let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's get it correct when we say what he really wants is our hearts. He wants us to relate to him on the basis of faith. He wants us to believe him, take him at his word, entrust ourselves to him, and offer sacrifices that he has designed for us to give. He's placed his spirit within us as believers. He's given us spiritual gifts as believers. He's asked us, through love, serve 
one another. And by his spirit, he is seeking to lead us into ministry and service for one another. As we gather, like we did in the previous hour, and seek to bring sacrifices of praise, the fruit of our lips to God, we are seeking to give from our hearts to God. We're not seeking to impress other people with how eloquent we are or how great a devotion we can give. We're seeking to open our hearts to God and relate to him on the basis of faith. It's by faith that we please God. Faith is what he requires of us. Verse 4 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Faith is a living hope that is so real that even though circumstantially it may seem unreal or circumstantially it may seem impossible, faith is a living hope that is so real that it gives us absolute assurance to where he can say in verse 1, it's the substance, it's the exact representation of the things hoped for and the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. My in-laws, Jean and Lorraine Train, were missionaries in Bolivia since uh, 1952. And as I came to know their daughter and asked for her hand in marriage, I I came to know them and their ministry. Serving overseas, they had developed a very strong faith and trust in the Lord. They went through so many difficulties that the only way they could live uh, was by faith. And, And some of the ways in which they demonstrated their faith, to me, was reproving. One particular time, they were with us uh, in Dubuque when we were first there. Uh, They had come up uh, first to Seattle and then had visited us uh, in Dubuque before they were returning back to the field. And they had a group of doctors in Seattle that would collect together medicines and give those medicines to them so that they could carry them out into the rural areas in Bolivia and distribute them among the people because they did not have access to medicine. We were at the breakfast table on the morning in which I was going to drive them to the airport and they were going to return to Bolivia. And the package with the medicines had not arrived from Seattle to Dubuque. Uh, They had checked and realized it was going to arrive by the United States Postal Service that very day. And so at the breakfast table, my mother-in-law, Lorraine, announces to me that before we head out to the airport, we need to receive this package from the post office. And I explained to her that the mail comes to our house at 3 o'clock every day. And in order to catch the plane, we're going to be leaving the house at noon. And so, no, you will not be receiving your package today. I I guess we'll have to get it to you some other way. And she said, no, I have prayed And the Lord will make sure, because the Lord knows the needs of these people, I am sure the package will arrive today. She had a faith that was reproving to me. I felt she'd been out of the country too long and didn't really know the United States Postal Service. (laughs) And so I knew their phone number in in downtown Dubuque. Dubuque's a small enough town, 
people know each other. I just called him up and I said, hey, we have this package that's coming in. My in-laws are saying it's got to arrive today. Uh, do you have it down there? Can I drive down and get it? And he goes, no, I'm sorry. It's already out with the postman on his route. which was frustrating. And so I, I hang up and I, I say to my mother-in-law, I said, do you want me to get in the car and drive around our neighborhood, see if I can find the postman and see if I can get the package for you? And she says, no, the Lord knows. The Lord will take care of this. At 10 o'clock in the morning, this is shortly after breakfast, two hours before we need to be at the airport, there's a knock at the door. I open the door, it's the postman. He's got the box. And I said, what are you doing here? You don't come till three. And he says, I decided to do my route backwards today. And, and I said, is that legal? <laughs> and I learned a huge lesson. That faith is not something you access in relationship with God on special occasions. God wants us to live by faith moment by moment every day. He wants us to have a relationship with him where we are trusting in him and seeking his leading and seeking to please him. Not in our own efforts, not by our own merit, not by even our own outward actions, but seeking to please him by trusting in him and being willing to be his servant and to do what he asks. We're in a different covenant from the Old Testament covenant. We're in a new covenant. And the sacrifices that we bring are different from the Old Testament Mosaic sacrifices. But the sacrifices that we bring are pleasing to the Lord. But let's not bring sacrifices through outward mechanisms of trying to demonstrate our worth before God. Because our worth is only based on Christ's work on our behalf. But let's instead learn the lesson taught in this story. That God is asking us to express to him our dependence in him, our trust in him, our longing to lean on him to accomplish his will. And let us therefore bring sacrifices by faith and hence give a more excellent sacrifice than one in which we would seem to be merely discharging a duty. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how reproving it is you require faith of us. And yet, how true it is that we would not be able to receive the gift of salvation were it not by faith. That you have told us we do not deserve it and we have not earned it. And that in fact, we deserve to be rejected by you. But instead, in your mercy, by your grace, you have offered us forgiveness of our sins we would not trust in ourselves, but instead entrust ourselves to the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who took our sins upon himself and died in our place. And if you have asked us to enter this relationship with you by faith, may we continue to live 
by faith in a manner that is pleasing to you. O Father, teach us, therefore, to live in a manner that is pleasing by living by faith. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.